0: The ultimate nature of bodhicitta, the relative level, is compassion. The ultimate level of bodhicitta is the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. And as one Tibetan teacher said, when compassion and emptiness are both present, enlightenment is unavoidable. So this is what we practice, this is what we come to realize to cultivate, the relative bodhicitta of compassion, the ultimate bodhicitta of emptiness. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insider. I've been reading the biography of Ajahn Man, who was, in some sense, the, the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition. He was this very great monk, reputed to be an Orhant. And this biography was written by one of his great disciples who is still living today, Ajahn Mahabua, who is himself considered to be an Orhant. So this is a very powerful lineage. This is a few lines from this biography. Of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world. So be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly, the mind is a priceless possession that should not be overlooked. When I read it, it just, those few lines inspired me so much because it was a reminder that we have everything we need. We already have this mind, this precious treasure. And our task is simply to understand it. And how do we understand it? By observing it. So it's not complicated. It just takes a great effort to stay consistent, to stay constant. Tonight, I'd like to talk about one way of characterizing this precious mind, and that is expressed in the term bodhicitta. Now, bodhicitta is a both Pali and Sanskrit term. Bodhi, as you know, means wisdom or awakening. Jitta is the heart, the heart mind. So, we could say bodhicitta is the heart mind of awakening. As it has been explained and expressed in different traditions, we talk of relative bodhijitta as being compassion. And it's the realization that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. So it's that compassion which is contained in the aspiration that we do our practice, that we undertake our practice, Not only for ourselves, but for the benefit and welfare of all beings. So, this is one aspect of bodhicitta, this very powerful motivation and aspiration. And we can do this in a very simple way. We can practice this aspiration in a very simple way at the beginning of each sitting or the beginning of each day. You know, the simple reminder or expression. May I attain liberation? May I attain awakening? May I attain enlightenment? May I attain the end of suffering for the welfare and benefit of all beings? So it's a reminder of what we're doing. It puts what we're doing in this very noble and limitless context. And at the end of a sitting, or the end of a day, in our dedication of merit, We can also reaffirm this aspiration. May the merit of my practice be joined with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, past, the present, the future. So even if we think our own particular little meritorious action is not that significant, we're joining it together with this great stream of virtuous action all the virtuous actions of the three times. May the merit of my practice be joined together with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, and together may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings. So we practice this. you know, As we say it, and if we say it with faith, with confidence, it it waters the seed of bodhichitta within us. The ultimate nature of bodhichitta, the relative level, is compassion. The ultimate level of bodhichitta is the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. And as one Tibetan teacher said, when compassion and emptiness are both present, Enlightenment is unavoidable. So this is what we practice. This is what we come to realize, to cultivate. The relative bodhicitta of compassion, the ultimate bodhicitta of emptiness. A transforming realization in practice is the understanding that these relative and ultimate levels, compassionate emptiness, are not polarities in any way, but they are really expressions of each other. And there's one teaching by one of the great Tibetan masters, I think of the 18th century, his name was Shabkar. He, br- he beautifully expresses this union of these two levels. And this description is really a description of our own minds. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So this is not someone else's mind he's talking about. This is the nature of mind, this precious mind that Ajahn Man referred to. This mind which is our treasure. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So what does intrinsically empty mean? Now this is an interesting translation of a Pali Sanskrit Tibetan word. For many people, you know, the word emptiness in English is not all that inspiring. We hear the word empty and we might have connotations of, you know, just some bleak vacuity. There's nothing there and it's not very interesting. Or it might, we might conjure up a sense of a blank nothingness. That's what we might imagine when we hear the word empty. But the Sanskrit word, the Pali word for emptiness is shunyata. And in Buddhism, shunyata has many profound meanings. I'd like to discuss a few of these meanings of shunyata, of emptiness, because it's a profound description of the very nature of our minds. And the simplest level of understanding, one that I think we can easily relate to, is understanding the emptiness as an absence of self-centeredness. And in common language, we might think of self-centeredness as being a personality problem. You know, we say somebody is very self-centered. But it also has a more fundamental meaning, and that is when we create or hold a sense of self to be at the center of our lives, self-centered, where we create this reference point for everything that we think and see and feel and taste and hear. And it was that sense or that creation of someone behind experience to whom it's all happening. And we do this over and over again. And we, we are holding the understanding, my body, my feelings, my thoughts, my emotions, my awareness. And we very often live in this gravitational field of the self-center. And we circle around our hopes and our fears, our plans, our worries, our work and our relationships. All of this, our lives, are often circling around this self-center. Revolving around desires, for ever-new experiences. You've probably noticed that in your mind. Just wanting the next hit of experience, even though we know, you know, we know clearly that they're all part of a passing show. They're all impermanent. And yet we're still very often caught on this wheel. But through sustained attention, through a wise attention, through Mindfulness, the power of mindfulness, of concentration, of wisdom, we begin to leave this self referential orbit. And we are drawn more into the gravitational field of shunyata. Now, in our practice, we begin to get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness rather than be lost in the self center of I and mine. The poet Rumi expressed this very well in his uniquely wonderful way. He said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have a home here, even though you have an address here. Live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. So even though we're living in the relative world, and we use conventional language of self and other, I and you. Even as we're living with an address here, can we abide in the nowhere that we come from? So we experience this emptiness of self, shunyata, in many ways. This is not simply you know, a Buddhist abstract philosophical doctrine, which might be of interest, but if it doesn't relate to our own experience, it's not of that much value. So it's important to bring it down. How do we actually experience it? How can we realize this for ourselves? We get an intimation of emptiness of self, even in our ordinary lives, you know those times in our lives when we simply enter into some effortless flow of experience? It might be in music, it might be in sports, it might be in art, it might be in a work that we're really deeply concentrated and interested in. You know, it's in those moments when things seem to just be going on by themselves and really are much better for it. We've gotten out of the way. So that's, that's a hint that's an intimation of what selflessness is. We see it in our meditation practice. You know, you've probably had the experience at times when you're walking, doing the walking meditation, and you just drop into that space where the walking seems to be going by itself. There's nobody doing anything. Or in the sitting, when it's all just going. So this is a taste. This is, this is the beginning of understanding the selfless nature. We can be reminded of the meaning, the experience of emptiness, shunyata. We can be reminded by our teachers, either by their presence, their empty presence, or by their words. When I first met Mahasi Sayadaw, who was one of Upandita's teachers teachers, and one of the great masters of Burma. It was amazing meeting him because it was Mr. Nobody. It felt like there was no one there. And it was such a unique experience, especially in the West, that it was striking. Just his presence was a teaching. You know, and... This kind of feeling, this kind of inspiration can come from many of the great masters because they're abiding in that place. Sometimes it comes as a direct teaching through their words. There's one story which some of you may have heard, but it just illustrates this point so well. It's a story of a student of Kala Rinpoche who was also another great Tibetan master. And this student lived in Canada. You know, and she had studied with Rinpoche for quite a while and then went home. She lived out, you know, way out in Saskatchewan or Alberta without much Sangha at all. And she wrote this letter to Kala Rinpoche describing her situation and saying, the only thing that sustains me is holding you in my heart. And then some weeks go by, and she gets a note back from Rinpoche with one line on it: "The nature of the heart is emptiness." <laughs> you know, it was just it's just that powerful moment. Okay, you're clinging to this, but then a little time after that, uh, something else came in the mail, and it was it was a verse which uh, Rinpoche had written. When you practice the holy Dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. So, in the letting go of our attachments, even our most precious attachments, attachment to teacher, attachment to the Dharma itself, when we let go and settle into the realization of emptiness, true emptiness. Slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of our minds. We can approach the experience of emptiness of shunyata from another side. This is a very, this is a very rich understanding, and you know, we can approach it from many angles. We can understand the emptiness of self, or the lack of self-centeredness, when we see that there is no independent, existing thing that the word self or I refers to. You know, we've created this concept for conventional usage. We've created this designation I and self. But when we look carefully, and this is part of our meditation practice, examining, investigating what is the nature of this mind and body, we see that there is nothing there that these words refer to. So, this is a great opening, a great realization. You know, if you could imagine, and it's maybe the forecast is for this to happen, but if you can imagine for a moment a great summer storm. Yeah, and so there's wind and lightning and rain and, you know, this great big event in nature. There's no storm apart from the lightning and the wind and the rain, it's not that the storm is something in itself. The storm is simply a designation for the constellation, the relationship of all of these elements. And so when we are mindful, very mindful, moment after moment of our own experience, which is what you practice all day long, we see that self... We're well, calling self, it's simply a designation for the changing weather patterns of these mind body elements. It doesn't exist apart from that. It's simply a conventional usage, a conventional des- designation. And then we can go even deeper. And we can see the empty, insubstantial nature of the very elements themselves. Even when we see that self is just a designation, just a concept, and it refers to this constellation of elements, but then we look even closer and we see that the elements themselves are not something substantial. They are arising and passing so quickly Nothing lasts long enough to be called self. Now at times in the meditation we go through periods of time like this where we're so attuned to the rapidity of change where our perception of change has become so refined that things disappear in the very moment of their arising. As soon as we're aware of them they're gone. So where is the self in this process? What could possibly be called self? We see that the very elements of our experience do not have any independent self-existence. There was a disciple of Ubakin who was Goankaji's teacher uh, in Burma, there was a woman jo- uh, whose name was Jocelyn King, um, she was one of his early western disciples and she had a very, she had a very uh, wonderful mind she, she said that it's better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than on the quicksand of somethingness you know but we're so used to taking our stand on somethingness not realizing that it's really quicksand So we realize or get an intimation of emptiness, shunyata, when we drop into the effortless flow of experience, when we're reminded by our teachers in one way or another, when we see that there is nothing that the word self or I refers to. We see the insubstantiality of all the elements. There's another doorway into the experience of emptiness, of shunyata, and that is through seeing that things are not amenable to our will. We cannot say with any hope of success, let my body not age, let me never be sick, let me only have pleasant mind states. Things are not amenable, they're not subject to our will. Every experience arises out of the appropriate conditions. Not because it doesn't arise because it has some intrinsic, independent self-existence and it's always there, and it doesn't arise because it belongs to us in some way and we command its arising, If we wish for something to happen, it's necessary to understand the causes and conditions necessary for it to happen. This is such a fundamental aspect of the Buddhist teachings. We can have the thought, let the water boil, let the water boil, let the water boil. boil but it will never produce a cup of tea. We need to raise the temperature of the water in some effective, by some effective means. There have to be some cause and condition for the water to boil, and then it will happen. Everything arises from conditions, and it's important to see that it's not only about external conditions, all of the internal conditions are following the same law. And the more we see this contingent arising, the more we can observe that in our own experience, that all the elements of mind and body are arising out of conditions, the more we see contingent arising, the more we realize emptiness of self. Just as an experiment, in I'll use some examples which, you know, are a little more from your life outside of retreat, but you will undoubtedly have many experiences here. Pay attention to those times, to those moments in your lives when it's obvious that things are not conforming to your will. Because in these situations it becomes very clear, you know, this truth of emptiness. As an example, well, something that does arise in retreat, it might be some condition of your body. You know, you're sitting and maybe there's a lot of pain, or some difficulty in the body. And you would wish for it to go away, but it doesn't go away. At least not necessarily when you want it to. Because it's not subject to your will, it's arising because the conditions are there for it to be present. Might be the arising of some disease. You now, how often do we take the onslaught of disease personally, as if it's our fault? You know, and this shouldn't have happened. It happens because the conditions are there for it to happen. We age because the conditions are there. It's precisely the same with difficulties, perhaps in relationships, you know, or in work. Going to the airport, you're two hours early, you, know, you plan everything, you arrive and the flight is cancelled. This wasn't done as a personal attack on you. It's not subject to our will, it's outside of our control, it's arising out of changing conditions. whatever the circumstances might be in our lives when we are noticing that they are arising out of conditions and not because we want them or don't want them to be a certain way as we practice seeing this experience of emptiness of self of shunyata directly you know seeing that things are not amenable to our will what happens is that there is a growing ability to let go. Because we're not lost in the illusion of control, of ownership. Now there's a great paradox here, which opens up tremendous possibilities for us. And that is that the more clearly we see that conditions are not amenable to our will the better able we are to actually accomplish our goals. Why is this? Because when we can let go of the ego posturing of being the one in control and drop into the mind state, the mind activity of wisdom, we then step back and see, okay, what are the conditions necessary for this goal to be accomplished. We see with clearer vision. The more we let go of self, of I, the more we accomplish. The last kind of experience of emptiness I'd like to refer to is talked about in many of the Buddhist traditions. And that is emptiness, the experience of emptiness when we realize the empty space-like nature of the mind. When we really are looking directly into our own minds, into the nature of mind, and recognize it's empty, space-like nature. And one of the great Indian adepts who brought Buddhism to Tibet, Padmasambhava, many teachings on this, and the nature of mind. He said, it is certain that the nature of mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial, like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. So, as with all of these aspects of shunyata, of emptiness, it's not a question of belief. It's not a question of philosophy. It's all a question of investigation. We need to look for ourselves. It is certain that the nature of mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. This same teaching, although this was expressed in the Tibetan tradition, it can be found in the Thai tradition, it can be found in Zen, Because it's a a pointing to the truth of our own minds. And we need to look. There are subtleties here. And often we mistake one thing for another. We may mistake states that are not empty as being empty. And one distinction, which I think is very helpful kind of points to one of these differences is the difference between spaciousness and groundlessness. Because we can often get into a very concentrated, open, spacious state of mind. But that is still a conditioned state. It arises out of conditions. But it's wonderful, it's very pleasant, it's very expansive, it's very spacious. But one, one teacher, kind of in wanting to clarify this, said it's probably better to think of this emptiness not as spaciousness, but as groundlessness. And I like that distinction because in groundlessness, there's nothing to hold on to, not even spaciousness letting go of everything, the mind that's not holding on to anything. So in this way of practice, in this doorway into shunyata, it's not through deconstructing the sense of self, as in some of the earlier ways, but rather in the direct recognition of the mind's empty essence. We look directly and we say. But as Shabkar said in the first verse, the nature of the mind is not just empty, it's also naturally radiant. What does radiant mean? In this context, it has a very specific meaning, and not the usual one. So often there's confusion. Because radiant, in this sense, means the knowing capacity of mind, the cognizing capacity. It doesn't mean that this, this great white light suddenly is shining. The radiant nature of mind's means refers to its knowing capacity, its cognizing capacity. It's the innate wakefulness, the innate awareness of the mind. Dasa, who's one of the great Thai monks, you know, of the last century. He said we should really call mind emptiness. But because of the awareness faculty, we call it mind. So it's this union of emptiness and awareness. There's a a book that I read that expresses this in a slightly different way, a more contemporary way. It's a book on... The History of the Number Zero, and it's called The Nothing That Is. And just that title, I love the title, you know, because it just, it seemed to me to be like words of Sambhava, <laughs> you know, just a pointing to the nature of mind, the nothing that is. So he wrote, this is the first, one of the first lines in the book, Look at zero and you see nothing but look through it and you see the world. And when I read that, it just completely resonated with kind of the Buddhist understanding of the nature of our minds. There's nothing to find, there's nothing there. It's empty like space. And yet there is this knowing faculty, this cognizing faculty. And these two are not two different things. It's the union of emptiness and awareness. So, the nature of the mind is empty like space. It has an innate wakefulness or knowing, cognizing faculty. This is not something we need to create, this is something that is already here, already functioning. And as many different traditions point out, although not emphasized in all of them, but you can actually find this teaching in all of the traditions, that this empty, aware mind is inherently or intrinsically pure. Now, as we've said before in earlier weeks, the mind is luminous, meaning that knowing faculty, but it's clouded by visiting defilements. Which means that defilements, the kalesas, are there, they're conditioned, and they arise, but they are not intrinsic to the mind. So this is very important because it points to the inherent purity of the mind. There was a, I think, 12th or 11th century Korean Zen master, Shinul who expressed this. He said, the nature of the mind, this empty, aware nature, is unstained. It is originally whole and complete in itself. So this nature of mind, the nature of our minds, again, this is not some philosophical description. It's this precious treasure of our minds. It's not something that we need to look for. It's not something that we don't have and we need to get. Rather, it's what we come back to again and again. As we let go of our various and often subtle obscurations, defilements, fixations, attachments. Those are the things that are obscuring it. It's like clouds obscuring the sun. The sun is there, even when we're not seeing it. So, one image that has been used to describe this movement from attachment, from fixation, from obscuration to awareness, we could say an image which describes the movement from delusion to wisdom, from self-center to zero-center, is the image... Are the images of ice and water. And when you think of ice, of course now you think of ice and probably f- seems pretty good. <laughs> but ice is solid, it's hard, it's frozen. So this isn't an example or an image for the mind lost in identification, with thoughts, with feelings, with the body. When we're lost in an identification or lost in an attachment to any arising object or even attachment to the knowing itself, this attachment, this fixation is like ice. Ice is when we're lost in the movies of our minds, which I think we all know very well. You know, it's like going to the movie theater and getting totally absorbed in the movie. We can get so absorbed that we really begin to feel that this is really happening. But then maybe we look up, you know, we see that beam of light, you know, being projected on the screen... And even though we may have been absorbed in the story with all kinds of emotional responses to it, we look up, we see that beam of light being projected, and we see nothing whatsoever is happening. Nothing is going on at all. Well, this is powerful. This is, this is a powerful coming out of this fixation, this attachment, this illusion of the solidity of the reality of this conditioned world. From another perspective, from the perspective of the more ultimate reality, nothing is really going on. So my, my favorite and very powerful example of this teaching you know, is a description of what was happening when the 16th Karmapa, head of one of the Tibetan lineages. You know, one of the great masters was dying was in Chicago or outside in, in Zion, Illinois, dying of cancer. His body was, you know, a total mess. The disciples were all grieving and upset. And and at one point it said he turned to them saying, don't worry, nothing happens. You know, and it's a, such a startling perspective on life and death and What's real and what's not real. Now, we could be watching all kinds of scenes on the movie screen, you know, of war and violence and love and horror movies and adventure movies, whatever it is, whatever our life dramas happen to be. And from another perspective, nothing is happening. So, this opens up some possibilities. We can watch ice forming many times during the day. You know, every time we get caught up in moments of desire, moments of anger, you know, of worry, of anxiety, of pride, of depression, you know, of longing, of planning, all of whatever, whatever our own particular patterns happen to be, whatever movies of mind you know, we're in the habit of creating, notice the getting lost in them notice what it's like in coming out of them water and this is moving to the other part of this image water represents the nature of awareness it's consciousness free of delusion free of attachment free of fixation water is unfrozen unfixated It's like coming out of the movie theater and realizing in that moment of wakefulness, oh, that was all a movie. Or coming out of a mind drama that we might have been lost in for minutes, or hours, or days, depending how intense it is, and realizing, yes, that was only a thought. It was only a thought. Nothing really was happening. Now, the great discovery, and this is what can bring so much confidence to our practice, is that water, awareness, is nothing other than melted ice. It's not some far-off other state. It's not that we're lacking something and we need to somehow struggle to find it. Water is nothing other than melted ice. It's this very mind, free of clinging, free of attachment, free of grasping. Now, in this open, unobstructed nature of awareness, empty of self, there is great spontaneity and responsiveness to situations. Because we're not fixed, we're not holding, we're resting in the experience of shunyata, emptiness of self, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, naturally knowing, cognizing, Ceaselessly responsive. Now it's like water flowing down a mountainside, which responds completely and appropriately to the topography. It's the nature of that flowing. On the level of relative bodhicitta, compassion is a practice which we undertake and cultivate. And as you know, it's one of the Brahma Viharas, we can actually cultivate the quality of compassion. But on the ultimate level of bodhicitta, we see that compassion is the responsive nature of emptiness itself. That the activity of emptiness is compassion It was a ninth century Chinese Zen master, one of the great Zen masters, Rinzai. And he expressed this unlimited creativity and potential of a person not imprisoned by the notion of self. So in his language, he calls this kind of person a person of no reliance. This person not relying on, not holding to anything. So he writes, If someone comes to me asking for the Buddha, as a person of no reliance, I present myself in a state of purity. If she or he asks for a bodhisattva, I present myself in a state of mercy and benevolence. If they ask for nirvana, complete enlightenment, I present myself in a state of utter serenity. Though there are hundreds of thousands of states, as a person of no reliance, I am always the same. Therefore, my presentation of various states, according to the requirements, is just like the moon that freely presents its images on every surface of water. Ceaselessly responsive to the situation. Appropriate to the situation. Free of self-image, free of fixation of self. Vilgokensi Rinpoche, he expressed the same thing in another way. He said, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others Dawns unconstrained and effortless, uncontrived and effortless. Compassion is the activity of emptiness, emptiness of self. This union of the relative and ultimate levels of compassion and emptiness illuminates a lot about the Bodhisattva vows. And as most of you probably know, the great Bodhisattva vows, they're expressed in different ways, but one of the the first of them is that beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. When I first came across this teaching, I could not relate. Not that I didn't think it was a good idea, or this would be great, but it seemed completely impossible. It seemed so out of the range of anything I could even conceive that I just put it aside as being, well, that's a nice idea, but very hard to relate to. And it was really only in recent years, maybe, you know, five or ten years ago, through different teachings on Bodhicitta, that there was a whole shift of understanding of what these Bodhisattva vows mean, at least for me. If we're resting our efforts to help all beings on the shoulder, if we're resting these efforts on the shoulders of self, it's way too heavy of a burden. You know, all beings, all the suffering, you know, the magnitude of that, to rest all of that on one's own poor little shoulders, it's just too daunting. It's overwhelming. Very difficult to do. But if we understand compassion not as the activity of self, but as the activity of selflessness, that compassion is the responsive nature of emptiness, then there is no one doing anything. It's like Rinzai, Master Rinzai, spontaneously responding appropriately to situations, arising out of that empty selfless wisdom place. So then the bodhisattva vow becomes tremendously inspiring. It's not someone taking this on. It's emptiness taking it on. It's selflessness taking it on. It becomes an unfolding of the Dharma. So for me, this just this different way of understanding it it became hugely inspiring, saying, yes, this is possible, I can work on emptying self, and let the compassionate activity follow from that. There's one a uh, few lines from a Tibetan text called the Seven-Point Mind Training. And I just want to end with this because it's a way of integrating the practice of bodhicitta the relative and ultimate levels in our daily lives. And it's just, in this text, there are just lines, particular points, uh, which he illuminates And when I read it, it just just kind of jumped out as being a very nice uh, summary. Consider all phenomena to be dreams. Be grateful to everyone. Don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Don't brood over the faults of others. Explore the nature of unborn awareness. At all times, simply rely on a joyful mind. Don't expect a standing ovation. It's that line which grabbed me. (laughs) Don't expect the standing ovation. So we plant this small seed of bodhicitta within us, without pretension, without grandiose expectations. We simply nurture the aspiration that our practice and our lives be for the welfare, the benefit, the happiness, the awakening of all beings. So let's sit for a couple of minutes.